Hey there, just wanted to drop in and let you know that we have rebranded our podcast. So if you hear the words The Out HR Podcast, that was our previous name, which now has been changed to The Workforce Podcast. Hi there, this is The Out HR Podcast, where we share best practices in HR, how we have been doing things different, answering your burning HR questions, and not forgetting some fun entertainment like HR Horror Stories. Today's episode is a recorded webinar hosted by Michelle, who is in the digital marketing team at OutHR. She's here to speak to Nalari's CEO and co-founder, Azran Osman Rani, on how to convert your workplace stress and anxiety into positive energy and performance. In this webinar, we'll be talking about how stress and anxiety can actually help serve as a useful motivation tool in order to thrive in your work. So stay tuned, and without further ado, let's get started. Today. We have a very special guest, Azran Osman Rani, co-founder and CEO of Naluri, a digital therapeutics platform. Azran has over 20 years of experience in building disruptive businesses. If you don't already know, prior to founding Naluri, Azran was also the founding CEO of AirAsia X and the CEO of iFlix Malaysia. Now, COVID-19 has been known to us for about nine months now. And our movements, although slightly relaxed, has also been restricted since March when the MCO started. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have experienced some form of stress or anxiety during these pandemic times. Azran will be telling us more about how we can convert the stress and anxiety we are feeling at work or at home into positive energy and subsequently leading to better performance. Over to you, Azran. Hey, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, thank you for being with me uh, today. So I wanted to start first by asking one question, which is when you compare your situation now to before uh, the lockdown period, before March 18th this year, has your stress and anxiety levels grown higher now compared to before? Have your sleep patterns been disrupted more now than before? And have you seen ex- any diet or exercise changes now more than before? So let me know whether it's sort of kind of gone higher and more intense now compared to before, or do you think it's been about the same? And, uh, or maybe you think, you know what, things are a lot more under control now. So, you know, let me know, give me a reaction on, on, on the chat or, or anywhere. Um, because what I wanted to share with you today is how these things, these things that are happening right now are not in one-off events. Uh, certainly from what I've experienced personally, and I want to share with you all the different things I've gone through, is that just when we think we've figured one thing out, there's always something else around the corner. In a way, life is like that, right? It's going to just kind of knock us down and catch us off guard. We can't control that. But what we can control is how we respond to it. So, for example, when I started the airline, right, in 2007, there was a lot of fanfare. We raised investor capital. We, um, you know, we launched the plane in November 2007. And then soon after that, boom, the world changed with the global financial crisis. Uh, Banks who said they were going to lend us money all pulled out. We were in a completely tight liquidity crunch. And while all of that was happening, there was extreme volatility with oil prices, right? You know, we normally when we set our budgets or business plans, we kind of look backwards, right? So in 2007, you look backwards, ah, 
from 2002 to 2007, oil prices were about $60, $70 a barrel. Let's plan for that. Well, guess what? Six months into 2008, it reached $140 a barrel. You know, and you do all kinds of things to prepare for this new normal, this new high oil price. And boom, six months after that, by December 2008, it went down to $32 a barrel, something that we cannot completely predict at all. Right. And besides that, one after the other, there were um, all sorts of natural disasters from the Icelandic volcanic eruption in 2010 that shut up the entire European airspace, leaving thousands of thousands of our passengers stranded in both London and Malaysia. And then the following year, just when we started flights to Tokyo, boom, the Tohoku tsunami, earthquake, nuclear disaster, which caused massive disruptions. And the following year, just when we started flights to Christchurch, New Zealand, so not one, but two big earthquakes that really uh, impacted the city and the country, right? And in any businesses, as we're going through right now, it's very hard to operate when there are constant changes to policies and regulations. Uh, you know, the government landscape is, is highly fluid and uncertain, but nothing compared, for example, to 2014, where we had to deal with not one, not two, but three black swan events. So black swan events are something that's really big, really unexpected and can have a massive impact. Right. In the case for the Malaysian aviation sector, unfortunately, in March that year, we had MH370. And then just when we figured things out, by July, we had MH17. Just when you think you could figure that out, there was QZ8501 in December, like three in a row in a single year. How do you even bounce back from that? And it wasn't just work, right? What we're going through right now, it seems like, you know, like everything's been compressed into days and weeks, something new happens. And even in my personal life, you know, you think things are normal, but you never know when life's going to hit you from behind in a completely unexpected manner. In my case, literally, while I was cycling in May of 2018, a car came from behind at a very, very high pace and knocked me out, leaving me unconscious, uh, lying in the hospital bed, uh, you know, sort of skulls fractured, bleeding in the brain. Uh, multiple uh, spinal vertebrae fractured, three of my four limbs were in a cast. And of course, you know, it's an extremely painful experience to have to kind of do, uh, you know, repair my shoulder and, and sort of broken bones. You know, when these things happen and you're lying in bed, our brain is just full of all these unexplainable thoughts and questions. We worry about, in my case, What's going to happen to me? Am I ever going to walk again, let alone run? Uh, do I need to close down the new business that I had started? Uh, you know, who's going to take care of my family, my friends? And you've got all of these overwhelming big questions that you don't have any answers to because it's impossible to find these answers to these very big questions while we're just stuck there on the hospital bed. And a lot of times, right, when these big things happen to us, we feel paralyzed. We feel like we're a victim. We don't have any control. And we just kind of lie in one position, somehow just hoping that things will change. And of course, they're not going to change on their own. I was lucky. I was lucky because um, with my Nullary team, you know, I had psychologists and doctors and dietitians, and they basically summarized it into, well, you can't solve these big questions Let's start by focusing on the smallest things that you can do, right? So when you find yourself in a tough situation, what's the smallest thing that you can just start the process to get going? And in my case was to learn how to get off that hospital bed and to learn to take my first steps again. And even if it was just for five meters, 10 meters, 
just for a few steps because one of my legs was still fractured. Um, but that gave me confidence. And once you have confidence from starting one small point, that keeps growing. And by day 33, I was able to start walking on the treadmill. Again, initially five, 10 minutes, but every single day increasing a little bit and a little bit. And by day 47, I could pick up the pace again to be able to start running and that start feeling good. I started getting more momentum, more, you know, feeling more confident about myself. And day 62 was liberating because we could finally run outdoors, right? Imagine how back in June when we were allowed to go outside of our house to, to run outdoors. It was this big emotional burst to be able to experience nature again. But nothing was like day 84 when I got to get back on the bicycle, a, a new bicycle because the first one was broken from the accident, but to join my friends to get back on the road. This was important for me because I didn't want to feel like that accident would take away that experience from me forever that I would always be afraid to ever get back on the bike. And so I really wanted to get back on, right? And to tell myself, like, life keeps going. And, and that one event is not going to change and hold me back. And that confidence then moved on to day 112 because then my shoulder started to heal. I could finally get 360 degrees of rotation, um, you know, because initially it was still very stuck from the, from the broken shoulder. And now I had a purpose, right? Because if I can start running again, I can start cycling again. I can now get back in the pool to swim. I had a purpose, which was to get ready to go back to Ironman triathlon racing. And on day 174, slightly less than six months from that accident, I went back to Langkawi to sign up for that Ironman uh, 70.3 triathlon and to be able to complete it. Because this for me was all about, you know, getting something from that whole experience, which is I wanted to be able to tell my children that, you know, life is going to be tough. Life will knock us down hard and we can't control the tough things that happen to us, but we can choose how do we respond. We can choose how we respond by just lying on that bed or if we just start small and start building that momentum, we can do a lot of things that we never thought possible while we're lying in bed. Because as I was lying in bed and I could barely walk, there's no way I thought in six months I could go back to triathlon. But it's the momentum of going one step ahead, one step ahead, that gave me the courage and the confidence to keep going. You see, our brains, our brains are designed for one main thing, which is to keep us alive, our survival instinct. But the way it does this, though, is that it tends to guide and orient us towards things that are familiar. It likes things that are predictable, reliable, and stable. It doesn't like anything that's risky or unknown or unproven, which is why right now when we're sitting here and we're wondering, uh, is the MCO going to be over after 31st of um, August? I don't think so. But, you know, the uncertainty is something that the brain sort of gets triggered because it doesn't like uncertainty because, you know, from a whole evolutionary pattern, anything that's uncertain could mean danger, could be a threat to our survival. Now, the way the brain then signals to our body to get ready for these potential threats is that it puts our body in this, you know, state of action, state of like, I'm ready to fight or I'm ready to run away. So stress that we're experiencing right now is a normal biological reaction for survival. Because in our old days, right, um, the dangers that we were facing were, you know, let's say a predator that was chasing after us. And whenever we experience a predator trying to chase after us, 
these stress hormones start to get triggered, right? Cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine that floods through our body. What does it do? It starts to get our heart to beat faster, our lungs to expand, our muscles to be primed, ready for action, either to kind of fight and confront that uh, predator or the threat or to even run away, right? So like this deer, right? When the, when the lion is chasing after it, it needs stress in order for the heart to beat and the lungs to expand and the muscles to be primed in order to outsprint the lion. Here's a tip. If you ever find yourself in a situation where a lion is chasing after you, remember, the lion will give up usually about 30 seconds. So if, as long as you can outsprint the lion for 30 seconds, you're pretty good. Because after 30 seconds, the lion's going to go, oh, oh, I'm out of breath. I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to give up chasing that um, deer or that antelope. But the lion also needs stress. The lion needs the stress trigger when it sees its prey for the heart to beat faster, for the lungs to expand and the muscles to be primed because it's got to chase after the prey. And if it doesn't, if it goes through many days without being able to catch a prey, it's going to starve to death. So it needs stress in order to perform and, and not be uh, left behind uh, with, without anything to eat. So stress is something that's, that is a natural phenomenon. But we actually choose, do we respond to these threats as a victim, as that a prey where things are happening to us that we have no control, or do we respond to it like a predator, like the lion that says, I'm primed and ready for action. See, the thing is this, there's this fascinating study in 2011, which measured people's, you know, the effect of prolonged stress on our body. Right? And what, what the research shows is for those of us who are experiencing a lot of stress over and over again, our risk of death, our risk of heart attacks and heart diseases goes up by 43%. Right? Because if we're constantly under stress, the blood vessels, the blood vessels in our body get constricted, right? Because uh, you know, the, the, the stress hormones are trying to constrict the blood so that the blood pressure becomes higher to send the blood to our muscles to be ready to be primed for action. But unfortunately for humans, today's stress is not a lion that's going to just give up after 30 seconds, right? Today's stress is our boss being angry at us, our clients being upset at us, our spouse, the mountains of bills we have to pay, and these stress doesn't go away in 30 seconds. And so that high blood pressure, that, that state of you know, agitation of, of being ready and primed carries on for a long time. And that's what causes heart diseases. But here's an interesting fact. What the researchers found is that the increased or higher rate of death was only um, relevant for people who felt that stress is bad for them, right? So if you think stress is bad, the moment you're under stress, you're actually going to have very tightened blood vessels. But for people who looked at stress as, hey, stress is the signal for my body to prime me up, ready for action, or ready to chase my prey, the blood vessels did not constrict and tighten. And they did not have any difference in their mortality rate versus those who were not experiencing stress. So how we view stress actually matters whether it's going to affect our, um, our body or not. It's a bit like turbulence. I used to come from the aviation industry. I don't know whether any of you are nervous flyers, right? So sometimes if there's turbulence, you might get very nervous and anxious. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? If we ever now are, are, are allowed to go back to flying again, hopefully soon, 
And, and if you find yourself in caught in turbulence, try this next time, which is start repeating to yourself like for 10 times, hey, this is exciting. When I get home, I'm going to tell my friends. Hey, this is exciting. When I get home, I'm going to tell my friends. What you're telling yourself is what's happening to you is excitement, right? And when you get home, you're going to tell your friends, you're saying, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to tell my friends, which means I'm going to survive this situation. And the body responds differently. You see, excitement and fear are the same biological reactions in our body. It's just how we view it, which is why some people like really enjoy roller coaster rides or skydiving, and other people are completely terrified from that experience. But it's the same experience. So, you know, two normal human beings, one is really enjoying it, the other one's really terrified of the same external stimuli. So the external stimuli doesn't change, but how we view it matters in terms of our ability to handle it, right? So let's come back to things because as I said, the, the challenge that we live in today in our modern society, the stress threats that we're experiencing don't go away, right? Unless any of you have a secret for, you know, making the boss stop being angry after 30 seconds or the client stop being upset after 30 seconds and the monthly bills disappear without having to worry about it, let me know. But otherwise, these stress pressures are coming again and again and again nonstop to the point where we humans have evolved where the danger hasn't even started yet, but we already start to get triggered. Our hearts start to beat faster. Our lungs start to expand. The muscles start to be primed up before that line comes. So before the boss is upset, before the clients are upset, before our spouse is upset, before the bills are due, we already anticipate that it might come and it's causing the body to react. That is anxiety. So stress is a response to a threat. Anxiety is when the body starts to react to a future potential threat that hasn't happened yet. And for others, that threat has gone away. Sometimes way back when, you know, childhood trauma, you still can't let go of that reaction to the body. Those negative thoughts still keep playing in the head over and over again. That, in a sense, is depression. So while stress is an immediate threat, anxiety is when the body's worried about a future potential threat, and depression is when the body's worried and cannot let go of something that's already happened in the past, and it's really affecting us. So what happens to our body when we've got all these thoughts playing in, uh, in our heads over and over again? So I want to leave you this with, with an interesting anecdote. So one day of Ironman triathlon racing, which can involve up to four kilometers of swimming in the sea, then 180 kilometers on the bike, and then a 42-kilometer run, in that one day of racing, I will burn 6,000 calories. That's like 10 plates of nasi lemak. One day of racing, and I'll probably lose several kilos of weight uh, from that one day. But a world champion chess grandmaster playing chess in a world championship tournament burns 6,000 calories. That's right, guys, no need to exercise, just play chess. Now, of course, he doesn't burn those calories from moving chess pieces, but because the brain is working on overdrive, thinking about 50 different moves ahead, multiple scenarios, and when the brain is moving at high speed, it consumes a lot of calories. Because our brain is only 2% of our body weight, but it consumes over 20% of all the energy, all the calories that our body needs, right? So when thoughts are playing in our heads over and over again, nonstop, it leaves the body physically fatigued 
physically tired, right? Now, what's the one thing that's happening right now to a lot of us that starts to create the foundation that leads to stress, anxiety, and depression? And the first thing is mind wandering. Mind wandering is when our brain is wandering somewhere else instead of focusing on the task in front of us. Harvard researchers basically quantified this and said that on average, a person is mind wandering 47% of his waking hours, 47. In fact, half of you right now watching this webinar, while you think you're watching this webinar, you're checking your WhatsApp messages, your Facebook feed, you're sending some emails, you're doing a few things at once. By doing multiple things at once, you're encouraging your brain to kind of float from one thought pattern to another thought pattern. This is the one thing that creates exposure to that anxiety and depression because our brain, remember, is all about just survival and it's constantly looking for negative things, right? Which is why some of us like weirdly are so focused on all the news feeds on Facebook because of all the negative news that's happening in the world, right? And the thing that a lot of us are, are kind of doing right now is this whole trap of simultaneous multitasking, right? You think you're being productive, but you're not, you're not, right? Um, you know, trying to do multiple things at once, the brain actually cannot do that. What you're doing is you're kind of breaking things down into small chunks, right? For example, four seconds answering this WhatsApp messages, then seven seconds I'm paying attention back to this webinar, then 12 seconds I send this email up, then I'm gonna go and, and kind of, um, you know, check my Facebook news feed or my Instagram feed, go back to WhatsApp, go, you're switching gears, moving one after the other. You're not doing all things at once, you're constantly shifting gears. And every time you shift gears, the brain has to work extra hard, right? So imagine, for example, if I were to uh, time you, or you can do this later, just do a screenshot of this, right? You can see two different sets of activities. On the left-hand side here are arithmetic um, uh, problems that you can work on. And on the right-hand side are kind of like creative visualizations, right? So look at each two pairs of objects and come up with a sentence that that kind of uses both things, right? Now imagine if I had asked you to do this, one on the left and move to the right, then one on the left and move to the right, one on the left and move to the right, right? So what's 18 times seven? Go, 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 finish that. Okay, come up with a sentence where there's a fish on a bicycle. Okay, then move to 52 plus 19, what is that, right? Then find what's, you know, how do you make a sentence with an apple and an eye? If you keep hopping from one different task to the other, what research shows, is you're gonna be about 20% slower than people who are only doing all the work from the left when they're done, then they do all the work from the right, right? So notice how by simply task switching all the time, we actually lose productivity, efficiency, and effectiveness, right? And imagine basically like driving a car. What happens when you drive a car when you're constantly Accelerate and brake, accelerate, brake, change direction, accelerate, brake, change direction. What's happened to your car engine? How efficient is your fuel going to be compared to if you're in cruise control for the next 25 minutes, I'm just gonna drive straight on this highway, then I'm gonna make a turn and then gonna drive straight again for another 15, 20 minutes, right? The engine becomes a lot more efficient because it's kind of doing one thing uh, at a time, right? So the idea of task switching is the main thing that a lot of us are doing that's kind of causing us to get 
you know, the brain to start moving all over the place. So the more you encourage the brain to, you know, go all over the place, you're creating vulnerability. It starts to look for those anxious thoughts of the future and the depressive thoughts of the past. So what do we do about it? What, what, what can we do to train the brain to become more mentally fitter? It's the same thing we have to do to become physically fitter, right? There's a training process. You're not going to get mentally fit from watching this one webinar, right? If you are looking for a quick hack, it's not gonna work. Just like if you just watch one webinar on how to become physically fit, you're not gonna get physically fit. Even if you actually went to the gym for one day and you do a lot of exercises with weights and cardio, you're not gonna get fit from that one event, right? If anything, you're just gonna have sore muscles and you're like, oh, I don't wanna go to the gym again. But there's a specific set of activities that we can do to train the brain to become more resilient, more focused, more optimistic, and more curious, and not grapple with all the anxious thoughts of the future and the depressive thoughts of the past. So some things I want to leave you with, right? Training the brain to focus is a muscle that needs practice and practice and practice. And that is what a lot of people call mindfulness. Now, mindfulness doesn't have to be like, you know, kind of getting into a lotus position and have, you know, do all these deep breathing exercises. You know, that helps. But mindfulness just basically means when I do something, I'm intentional about doing it. I'm focused on the task and I'm not in this sort of like judging situation. You could even apply mindfulness to eating, right? If I were to say, hey, you know, do five, 10 minutes of meditation in the morning, you're going to go, look, my morning is so busy. Where am I going to find five to 10 minutes? Well, I'm sure all of you today are eating, right? Eating is something that we do every single day. You can apply mindfulness to eating, which means when I eat, I eat. I notice the food. I notice the colors. I notice the textures. I notice the sensations, the taste. I wonder about where did the food come? How did they get to me? Rather than eating mindlessly, which is checking my WhatsApp messages, you know, checking uh, the television, uh, the news feed while I'm eating at the same time, right? So when you have dinner with a family, especially tonight, right, engage in that meal together, have conversations with the family instead of being distracted with the phone or the TV. And that trains our brain to be focused on the here and now on in our activity and reduce its willingness to kind of go wander around and looking for negative thought patterns. Even exercise plays a big role in how we control our stress levels. But there's the right type of exercise and the wrong type of exercise. A lot of people, you know, CEOs in Malaysia say, oh, yeah, I exercise regularly, like, you know, three, four hours every week. I said, wow, that's a good amount. What do you do? I play futsal at Ampang from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Saturday nights. What do you do the rest of the six days? Nothing. Well, all you're doing is you're kind of putting your body in a state of shock and trying to play futsal with 20-year-olds is, is something that's going to get your heart rate to even beat faster and, and actually create... Um, a kind of like a, a, a dangerous impact on the body rather than learning what is the right intensity, what heart rate do I need in order to control the stress hormones in my body? How do I, you know, focus on variety of activities? What are the movements that I need? What's the frequency spread over a week that allows my body to learn how to handle these stress hormones whenever they come? And with that, we conclude part one on how to convert your workplace stress and anxiety into positive energy and performance. In the second part of this recorded webinar, we'll be covering how the type of diet that one has can also cause an effect to their mental health and not just to their physical health. So if you're interested, keep a lookout for that episode soon.